This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. She overdosed someone on accident and tried to cover it up with atropine and did it. And she said, oh, now I can really do it. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Mary Kay McBrayer. Mary Kay has written a book about one of America's most infamous female serial killers, a poisoner from the 1800s. She was a first-generation Irish-American nurse who was born with the name Anora Kelly before the woman she worked for changed it to Jane Toppin. And soon Toppin would be synonymous with murder and grief. We're in Lowell, Massachusetts, which is outside of Boston, by I think about 40 minutes contemporary transportation. And Honora Kelly is born in Lowell in 1854. Lowell is a very conservative town, very waspy also. So lots of Protestants, zero Catholics, which is important in the context because her parents are Irish immigrants. I don't have a lot of information about them because they're Irish immigrants and they're working class. We didn't pay a whole lot of attention to them at the time. So it's very waspy, very class-oriented. So the phrase is you either have a maid or you are a maid. No middle class. Mm-mm. Maybe upper middle, like they would fake it into the top by getting a maid. Or when Honora is in infancy, her mother dies of tuberculosis. Oh, no. Right. So leaving her father with four children, single dad, Irish immigrant, four children, uh, or I started the book, is when he drops off his two girls at the Boston Female Asylum, Mm. which was essentially an orphanage. They didn't call it an orphanage because I think that it really was an altruistic venture, the best of the time. So he surrenders them to this safe house, essentially, because he can't take care of them. The rumor is that he was a tailor and he sewed his own eyelids shut. (gasps) So horrific story, great place to start. So she had two brothers and then one sister, right? I am not even sure of the sex of the other kids because there's no real documentation. At some points in my research, this doesn't exist. This document doesn't exist. I just have to research around it and then decide. That is how little we thought of certain groups, right? So the Irish, in this case, is not even keeping records. So the only reason you know about her history this far back is because she was put into an asylum? I think so. And the way they kind of stayed in business, because I'm pretty sure it was a private enterprise. I don't think it was funded or not very much by local or federal governments. So they indentured out the girls. Oh, wow. And wait, tell me how old they were. 
when Honora was surrendered to this asylum, she was six. So typically they would keep the girls in the asylum and train them on domestic work and really practical, useful things. They were educated in other subjects too, but not really outside of what they would need to kind of get by. And then when they turned 12, they were indentured to a local family and they were supposed to be provided living conditions, room and board until they turned 18. And then they would get either a new set of clothes so they could seek employment elsewhere and or $50. Wow. But $50? is a lot of money in the 1800s. It is. It's a lot more than it is now. But when all you know is domestic work and you already have a job lined up, it's like, why would I leave? Right. Nobody taught me how to go advocate for myself, of course, because that wasn't a skill that was valuable in that setting to the people who were indenturing them. So they did definitely rescue her from a really troubled home. So tell me then what happened. So she is indentured out. And do you know anything about the family or any of the skills that she picked up while she was working? Yeah. Everybody remembered her. She was very friendly, very fun to be around. Everyone felt really at home around her. She was a great storyteller. Like that's what they remember about her as a little kid, like as six or seven years old. So Mrs. Toppin, Anne Toppin, a widow at the time, goes to the Boston Female Asylum to indenture a child to come live with her. Although she was born a Nora Kelly, when Anne Toppin indentures her, she insists that she change her name to Jane Toppin because Nora Kelly is too Irish and she can't have her friends being uncomfortable around her because she's there all the time. Mrs. Toppin passed her off as an Italian girl whose parents had died at sea. Essentially, she starts to to teach the little girl to hate herself. Another thing that I think contributes significantly to the derailment of Jane as a human is that even though she and Toppin insisted that she take her name, they never adopted her, which as an eight-year-old, that has to sting, especially when they have another daughter. She doesn't have to work. She just lives there. I got the sense that Jane really wanted her to be a mother figure and called her auntie and wanted to be Elizabeth's sister, but they never made that legal step. It was very much treating her like a servant. So Jane starts displaying some pretty disturbing behavior. She's telling outrageous lies at school. She says that her father sailed around the world, that her sister married an English nobleman, and her brother was decorated at Gettysburg by Abraham Lincoln. Over-the-top things that she thinks are going to make her feel better or feel popular when everyone at Lowell High School knows who she is, that she's a household servant. What happened to Jane's biological sister who had been sent to the asylum with her initially? It's disputed. Nothing good happened to her. I'm not sure that she got indentured out. The family had a history of mental illness. It wasn't, I believe, the last known whereabouts of Delia, her elder sister, but the closest in age, was that she was doing sex work and then ended up in an actual mental asylum as well. So I'm not sure how much truth there is to that, if it was a sensational plot point. So let me recap what I've learned so far. So we have a little girl who is uh, born into an Irish family. She becomes indentured out, sort of sold to someone, to a woman named Anne Toppin. And Anne is upper class, and she has a biological daughter named Elizabeth. The young girl who was a Nora Kelly has now turned to Jane Toppin. And we sense that Jane is hoping to create a family here, but really she is truly an indentured servant. And I'm assuming that this is laying the groundwork for what will become a very hatred-filled, bitter life that then turns violent towards quite a lot of people. Exactly right. 
as I heard the story for the first time, too, I remember, you know, that's where the story picks up. She gets surrendered. And because I have some history in working in direct care with mental health, I was like, well, there's definitely more to that story. There's no evil kids. That just doesn't happen. Something happens to them. So I'll go look it up later. And then I did. But still, because I am you know, a writer and a reader, I was unsatisfied with the causality. That's what keeps us coming back to why people are the way they are. And you can't always find an easy answer. People are not just created out of thin air. They're as we know, it's a product of their environment based on her socioeconomic situation and where she was placed with this family. It does sound like a pretty bad beginning for someone who then will probably continue on to feel oppressed by life. I think so, for sure. Plenty of people have terrible childhoods and don't grow up to kill 30 people. So I'm not trying to say that that's what made her do it. One thing that I personally just found egregious was when Ann Toppin died, she didn't leave a single thing to Jane. No mention of her in the will at all. How long had she been a part of that family? So I don't remember the year exactly, but she was in her mid-20s. From age eight until mid-20s. Did you ever get a sense for what Anne Toppin was like as a maternal figure, even though she wasn't a maternal figure? She was essentially owning this person. Was Jane treated well? Do we have any idea about what their relationship was like? So from what I read, it was borderline abusive. Okay. I would consider it abusive. She was a genius, right? So like if you if you take any precocious kid and you try to tell them how to do something and they know that you're wrong, she was sassy, right? Like she would talk back. I don't think that they had a good relationship at all. I think Elizabeth a lot of the time had to intervene on Jane's behalf. And she did. And Elizabeth was Anne Toppin's daughter. She was actually significantly older, but acted childlike, which I tried to depict in the book because I remember learning that she was so much older than Jane and being just astonished by the stories of their interactions. It seemed like they were about the same age. How does the relationship between the Toppins and Jane Toppin end? One thing that Jane does, which I think is really ballsy and fun. I don't know if I can say that. It's really courageous. (laughs) You've heard my favorite murder. You can say whatever you want. (laughs) I think it's pretty ballsy that she decided when she's 28 that she's going to change careers. She decided that she wanted to be a nurse, which even now is really hard and heroic. And back then it was largely custodial work. She got accepted to Cambridge Nursing School, which is a huge deal, even now, very prestigious. And so that was one of the breaking points, right, with Elizabeth after Anne died. She stayed on for another, I think, four years just as a servant in the house. Also, she lived in this tiny attic apartment. I know that you're in a hot area, but can you imagine living in in the attic in the summer. I don't know how you wouldn't die of heat stroke. Yeah. And then very cold in the winter as well. So living, but at what cost, kind of. At some point, she went from being indentured to being a housekeeper. To get into nursing school, does she have to have some sort of an education before that, a formal education? I think that for nursing school, it was kind of a directly to, we're going to teach you how to get certified in this. Okay. They lived in the hospital, were at school and worked for 12 hours, and then they stayed in a dormitory with each other. So it was very intensive, exhaustive training. Gosh, that just makes me tired even thinking about it. (laughs) Do we have an idea of why she chose nursing specifically? Not specifically, but I think it was a sort of step up, but not far off from what she knew already. Okay, because you said it was custodial. Yeah, the head nurse, the doctors loved her, loved being around her. She would 
think of things they needed before they needed them, just really who you wanted on the shift. Hmm. But the other nursing students didn't like her and she didn't like them either. So she was very jealous. So this is where she earned the nickname Jolly Jane because she had such a nice disposition, right? But I'm guessing it wasn't the other students who gave her that name. So she gets along with patients, but she's also lying still. She said something crazy like the czar of Russia had given her a nursing job, things that were just totally outrageous. And she continually irritated her coworkers. Would tell stories to get them fired. They went out drinking or whatever, what she was doing. If you think about Jane's background growing up, She probably has very little memory of her siblings. And then the dynamic she has with Elizabeth, the daughter of the woman who took her from the home, that is not equal by any means. So she doesn't understand, like I talk about my 11-year-old twins, about socializing them. She doesn't understand how to socialize. So that's not surprising to me at all that she's thinking on people or she's having a competitive nature because it seems like nobody taught her how to get along with peers. Not great interpersonal skills. (laughs) Did she date? There is a rumor of a broken engagement. I was not really able to confirm whether that was something she made up. Well, I'll tell you one thing I did not realize that maybe some of the listeners knew, but there were lawsuits that started in the 1800s into the early 1900s. So when women would get engaged to men, the men would know that these women were not going to sleep with them until they got married, but the men would say, but we're engaged. Mm -hmm. And so the women would sleep with them, and then the men would break the engagements. You could sue that man, your ex-fiance, because now your perceived value in society has gone down because you've now had sex before marriage. But I think about that with Jane. A lot of women did that. So I could have absolutely seen that happen in this situation, too. You know, who knows? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) She's in the nursing school and she's single and she's causing problems within her peers, but she seems to be really well respected with faculty there. Yes. And some of her patients really adored her as well. When does this transition happen where she is treating people? She has a list of favorite patients. Yes, she's not getting along with some of the other people in nursing school, but when do we start to see her true personality. When she was at Cambridge Hospital, her patients would complain to other nurses and doctors saying they overheard her say to someone or directly to them that there was no point in keeping the elderly alive. Just horrible things, like they were just making her job harder. And then she also would drug the patients that she really liked so that the doctors thought there was something else wrong with them and they would have to stay. She had a separation thing. She didn't want to be separated from her favorite patients. Her patients were getting discharged and just kind of saying bye or not even saying bye. And she didn't like that because it was such a a hardship to care for them. So she would try to keep them, try to make them sick so they appreciated her more because she is really smart. She's just not been appreciated or recognized for any of her intelligence. So she thinks she's getting used again. I think so. Just like she did with Ann Toppin. That's a job you have to let go of people. But so is that what you would think? That's what I deduced. I don't know that she would say that if you asked her. So I think there might be something with the uh, attachment to other people of necessity. Like, if you need me, you won't get rid of me. Mm-hmm. Because that's what she learned as the basis of interactions. It's almost economic. And I know there's this crazy story about this patient, Amelia Finney, who had an operation. Jane gave her medicine. And then Amelia remembers Jane getting into her bed and kissing her and then being interrupted. But there's no proof. So the doctors don't do anything. 
What did they say to her? We don't think there's any truth to this. So we're going to recommend you to this other hospital. But you can't stay here because everyone's scared of you. So she goes to this other hospital and the same thing happens. And this time, rather than just dose covertly the patients that she liked, she would experiment. So she's back in nursing school starting over, was almost done, and now she has to go back through. So I can only imagine how frustrating that was, especially when she was so good at at the job when she decided to be. (laughs) So they also said that her textbook, you know how you kind of crease the spine on accident, you break the spine on your favorite page where the juicy scene is in the novel, for example, but hers would open to the pages for morphine and atropine. Right. They sold morphine over the counter at this. (laughs) Can you imagine? I can't imagine. Yes, I can. Late 1800s. I just, like, you just, right. You just, you just add it to your cart and then you check out with it and then you go home and take it as needed. That is wild. I am not well-versed in morphine. So as a shot, is that how you would take it? There are several different ways you can take it. One that she did with her super elderly patients when it was hard to get a vein was enema. Oof. I think you can administer it orally as well. It's harder to track when you don't inject it, right? Because there's no no trace of it. Do you think it was, the first one was an accident? Because it does sound a little more satisfying to kind of keep them around. Mm-hmm. Then she transitions to killing. What is that jump like? So I think it is similar to a lot of other killers that we see where it escalates gradually. She doesn't just wake up one day, I'm going to kill a whole family. I don't think that is what happened. I don't think she had a break I have a really hard time with accepting that that happens. It just seems like you could monitor it if you knew what to watch for and you knew that you should watch. So I do think that she escalated through accident at first, and then you get a little confident when you can rescue someone. So my my thinking is that she would dose people with morphine so they'd be unconscious. They have something going on. Let's keep them for observation. And then I think she overdosed someone on accident and tried to cover it up with atropine and did it. Oh, now I can really do it. Hmm. She really got off on taking people all the way to the edge of death and then bringing them back. And then, and we don't have to go too far into detail on this, but she got in the bed with people and derived sexual gratification from doing that to them as they were about to die and then bring them back. Oh my God. What is that? It is just, if no one else can recognize how smart I am, at least I'm going to prove it to myself. It's a mad scientisty type of perversion, I think. Give me a timeline where we are right now. She's at Cambridge Hospital. Mm-hmm. The other hospital, she had made people sick, right? right? But she hadn't killed anybody. That we know of. That we know of. Those complaints happen at Cambridge as well. No, I'm scared of her. I don't want her as a nurse. So she's then kicked out of Cambridge Hospital too. But she said, that doesn't matter because I can make more money as a private nurse anyway. Which she did. Because then she was going into the homes of the upper class and basically staying with them until they either got better or died. She became a private nurse then? Yes. Okay. Wow. She never got her actual nursing certificate or degree, but she went through the whole program at both schools, but never got the diploma because she was not really doing the job. She was killing people or hurting them. So then she went to private nursing and half of the time the people were very sick and elderly and the other half, she made them very sick. So she wasn't making money. She wasn't stealing from them. She wasn't making money off of any of this. This was a power thing. It was a power thing until the private nursing. 
And then she would, you know, slip a couple dollars out of their bag or a ring would go missing because she was also running up debt, buying food. She's gaining weight at this time as well. She's never been very thin, but that was the body ideal, you know, curvy. And also you can afford to eat. And also you can afford to eat. You know, I look at my list of victims and there are many of them, but the one that seems to strike me is, does this kind of start with the landlord in 1895 with Israel Dunham? That is the first confirmed one where they're for sure that that was her doing. Okay. Start with that story. So she moves in. Is she in a boarding house or where is she living when she first meets Israel and his wife? So I I think she got a lot of her clients by word of mouth. There are also advertisements in several papers of private nurses. That's how she found the clients. And then I think when she worked with one family, the neighbor would be like, oh, you still know Jane. Can she come work for us? And she would live with them. So it's not shift work like it is now. Sometimes it's more of like a live-in nurse until the contract is up, the person dies, or they get better. It's not exactly hand-to-mouth, but it kind of is, right? Because you can't really stack them up in a row because you don't know when you're going to need the work next. Hmm. She runs up a bill, hard to pay down her rent. She likes candy, so she goes to like the boutique specialty places. Clothes are important. She drinks, too, so that runs up a bill. And so she starts stealing to pay those things down. And then I think that becomes a power move as well because she can get away with it because they have so much wealth that they don't miss it. And it's really interesting, too, because I think when we... And by interesting, I mean like horrible, but also fascinating, that when we think now with so much of the criminal profiling that has developed in the past few decades, we know that typically there's a victim type and there's an MO, and it's usually like within the same ethnic group. Not always, but if it's not, it's usually pretty specific, right? It's usually Mm -hmm. like a specific hate crime. And she was all over the place. It started off with her patients who were patients from anything from having to get cysts removed to delivering children to at the hospital. It's just kind of everyone who needs care. And then it went to the elderly. And then from there it escalated to people she knew. It went to her family. And then it went to her landlord later who she owed money. And then that whole family. And then that's when they, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but she got real sloppy. (laughs) We're talking with author Mary Kay McBrayer about serial killer Jane Toppin, and we're about to find out how these murders happened and when they became very, very personal. It starts with Elizabeth, who was the woman she was raised with, kind of like a sister. Well, let's start where things start to unravel. So she's stealing in these upper-class homes. She's killing patients who are annoying to her or who seem like they're probably pretty close to death to begin with. When do we start kind of getting into the cases that we read about where she starts tripping up a little bit? Jane goes in summers at Cape Cod with the Davis family. Not always with them, but that's where they have like a little pod of cottages that people rent. And she stays there. And the residents, they love having her there because it's kind of like a doctor on hand. If something happens, she's nearby. She gets a discounted rate. She mails Elizabeth a letter. Remember letters when you had to do that to get in touch (laughs) with someone? So she mails Elizabeth a letter saying, like, come visit with me. Let's have this summer together. So Elizabeth comes out to spend some of the summer, like a vacation with her And Jane decides to poison her just on a whim. I don't know that she intended that when she invited her out. I think it just that bitterness rose 
So we don't know the circumstances or if there was an argument. There were no witnesses, anybody who had anything to say about the conversation between the two of them. I don't think that the conversation was witnessed, but I know that the husband said, I put Elizabeth on the train. He he was a depot master, so he's like, I put her on the train. She was fine. She arrived. She was fine. Within two days, she was dead. Oof. He got there before she died, but she was in unconscious and he didn't get to talk to her. Jane twisted the knife by saying before she died, she told me she wanted me to have some of her jewelry. Oh he doesn't gosh. care about that at the time, right? He's grieving, yeah. I know. So then this happens in 1899. And then two years later, she has then moved in with the Davis family. The moment when she got the most sloppy is when she killed the whole family, the Davis family. Alden Davis fought for the Confederacy and then moved to Boston. And he opened his mm-hmm. home as a hotel. People would go out and spend the summer on Cape Cod where they just need to get out of the city because it's so hot and smoggy. Alden's wife goes to see their daughter. Jane's on the way. I'm going to go collect this debt and we don't have to ever talk to her again. Why did they feel like that? Why did they not like Jane? I think they did like her. She had just had enough of her not paying her bills. So she shows up. Jane is happy to see her. She gives her some water. In the water, she drops something that poisons the mother. Morphine, atropine, strychnine. Hmm. So she dies within two days. Right? And Jane is consistently overdosing her. So it looks partly heat stroke. They don't really understand why she died. I can't remember exactly what it says on her death certificate, but it's not poison because they didn't know that at the time. So after that, she goes to take care of the family. We're friends. I'm sorry this happened. I hate it that I feel, you know, I feel so responsible. And then they start dying one by one. She poisons each of them individually, waits a while. She starts setting fires in the house, which is another escalation. What did the police say? There's no way all four of these family members who were in totally fine health before just happened to come into this woman's orbit and then died unexpectedly. So she's now killed Elizabeth. She's killed the Davis family. And then she approaches Elizabeth's husband, Oramel Brigham, who is a church deacon, right? She goes to live with Oramel as a maid of all work again, as his you know, live-in help, and tries to trap him into marrying her. And a lot happened with Oramel. She poisoned his housekeeper and killed her. Then she tries to poison Oramel after he says he's not interested in marrying her. Then she threatened to claim he got her pregnant. And he just says to get out. Another sad part is that she tries to kill herself, too, in the same way and fails twice. Wow. With poison? With strychnine or Mm -hmm. any of it? Wow. Let's pause on that because that seems, I don't know, she would know exactly how much she needed to take. So what does that mean? I struggled with that too because she did it twice and failed twice. Yeah, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. Did people find her both times? Was she rescued? Yes. Okay. So, well, there you go. Right. And I think it was more of a... Receiving attention thing, it sounds like. Uh, Yeah, attention and then also trying to absolve herself of getting caught. Wouldn't I know how to do it if it was really me? I'm not a good poisoner, obviously. And then I think, too, it was probably sad and attention-seeking, self-pity. And then the police on Cape Cod say, this is odd, Mm -hmm. that four people of this family have all died. And then they quickly connect it to Jane because... Everybody says she's sort of acting as the doctor and has all this medicine, right? Is she on the run or do they track her down or what happens? So they follow her from Cape Cod when she's staying with Oramel. And then she goes to stay with another of her friends, a couple. And that's when they arrest her. 
Tell me about the arrest. Is she surprised? Do we have any narrative about what happens from then going forward about interaction with police? So the detectives are pretty closed mouthed. And I think it's because they're embarrassed that they didn't catch her sooner. That's a high body count. She is being spoken to. And does she immediately confess? No, she maintains that she didn't do it until right after they convict her. Oh, you asked earlier, how was the arrest? She was outraged that they wouldn't leave her alone to pack. So they saw all of her underwear and everything while she was packing. Uh, well. Yeah, we're not going to let you go back into the back room alone. That's why they had female officers. They had female officers that early, many times in bigger cities, at least, to interview those women who are victims of sexual assault or to be involved in those sort of situations. Just because you have a female suspect doesn't mean she shouldn't be treated. (laughs) Like she's not a suspect. (laughs) Yeah. So she wasn't dramatic, but she was ticked off that they were not willing to leave the room while she packed up her undies. Yeah, she was scandalized. And then she maintains her innocence that she didn't do anything. And she actually had a childhood friend defend her, I think, pro bono, or for a very discounted rate. She got letters of support all through her jailing. And then she was convicted guilty but insane which was fascinating as well. And she went to a hospital for the criminally insane, Taunton, which actually is still in operation, but not not for that purpose anymore. Yeah, apparently it's still an active state hospital. So she goes on trial for killing the family specifically. I'm assuming they're not Mm -hmm. bringing charges on any of these other suspected deaths. So what is the trial like? And who is there and who is testifying? What kind of evidence do they have against her? Well, there's lots of cartoons in the papers of her being dressed and having a high collar and basically her nurse's collar at court, which was not really appropriate courtroom attire, but that's what she had. So that's what she wore. They focus a lot on how she looked and how she behaved and a lot less on the actual testimony. I think that's a product of the time. Yes. I think Victorian America was so stunned by the idea that there's this woman who could kill so callously that the facts would have just kind of gotten in the way. And this was a great courtroom drama. They interviewed the, what is it called when it's a woman jailer? Matron. It's like yeah, the jailing matron. matron. Yeah. yeah. They interviewed the matron about her. And yeah, she's really well behaved. She helped me mend a couple of shirts. She gets flowers from admirers. From male admirers, I'm assuming. Yeah. So we know that men who kill have female admirers. You see that with Ted Bundy and Richard Ramirez and these guys who are clearly dangerous, but women are still attracted to them. The same thing happens with men with some killers who are women. It's incredible, including in the 1800s. So she got flowers from male admirers. Or her former patients, you know, saying we support you and thank you, the ones she didn't kill. Did it seem like, was it a packed courtroom? There were a lot of of gawkers, observers in this particular trial? I found some of the courtroom documentation from the people in the courtroom, but a lot of it was missing from those archives. It was only the conviction, really, that went into detail. It said that there was a testimony from Amelia Finney, who was awake when she got in bed with her, 
and several family members of the victims. Okay, so she has been found guilty. Yes. But criminally insane. Mm -hmm. So that's curious. Just as a little aside, she doesn't actually fit the criteria in the 1800s for being legally insane because she doesn't fall under this McNaughton rule. So it's a rule that was named after Daniel McNaughton. And in 1843, he tried to kill England's prime minister, Sir Robert Peel. So McNaughton thought Peel wanted to kill him, so he tried to shoot Peel, but instead he shot and killed Peel's male secretary. So all these medical experts testified that McNaughton was psychotic, and McNaughton was found not guilty by reason of insanity. So this has been sort of a blueprint for ways to define whether someone is legally insane. This would assume that she did not understand what she was doing was wrong. And that doesn't sound like the case when you're covering up things. That means you know you're doing something wrong. Right. Oh, she definitely knew. And she said she knew. Yeah, they're going to overturn this. Yeah, I'm not crazy, so I'll be out soon. So they put her in a facility for the criminally insane. How old was she when this happened? Do you know? She was on trial in 1902, I think, right? So she's early 50s? Anybody from her family? Anybody at all? Mm -hmm. Nobody comes? Okay. And then she talks to the newspapers. Is that right? That's what the newspapers say is that she confessed everything to them, but not in the courtroom, which I find suspicious. Okay, so why? (laughs) Knowing what we know of her, I have a hard time thinking that if she was going to confess, it wouldn't be to the people in charge so that they knew that she was smart. In this confession, whether it's true or not, what what Mm -hmm. were the highlights of the confession? What did she say? Well, they were very sensationalized, which I guess is not totally out of character, but she said that Elizabeth was the first person that she wanted to die and that she laughed with delight while she gasped her last breath. Hmm. And just very over-the-top Victorian sentiments of how these people died and how she did it. And then she, did she talk about in the confession, did she talk about her motives or any of that sort of, anything in that nature? She didn't really say why she did it, but she did admit that if she had had a husband and children, she would have been too busy to kill all these people, which I also have a hard time thinking that she said, (laughs) right? I mean, obviously that's not true. You can make time for it if you really want to do it. But you're motivated. So this is a cautionary tale for spinsterhood, which it makes sense for the newspapers, right, to want it to be that way, because that was the ideal for the time. But it doesn't make sense for her to do it because she was very keen on taking credit for doing the good things that she did. So what is the lesson learned with this story? This woman who grew up in poverty and was really badly treated up until her 20s and then became independent by that time, it sounded like she really became corrupted. What do you take away from this? Besides, don't be a spinster. Who knows about strychnine? Right. I do think that there's a lot to learn from her story, especially about childhood. I would like to think that if she lived now, someone would notice that she was having problems at home and would try to give her the attention that she so clearly desperately wanted. I don't know that it would have changed anything, but I think that we need to pay more attention to intervening early is really the takeaway from her story that I got. Do you feel like had she not had this childhood, we don't know the answer to this really, but it's speculating. Do you think that this would have happened? She must have had some really bad things happen. It just seems like a lot of anger 
at a lot of people. I don't know that it would have stopped her behavior from escalating, but I think that we would have stopped a lot of subsequent murders. And I think that our laws are getting better at recognizing suspicious behavior before it really goes murderous. We know now that peeping Tom is not innocuous. That is indicative behavior. There's going to be something bad happening later. That is not boys being boys. No, it is not. And it has been treated like that for a very long time. You're right. Right. So I think some of these other things, I think there's more that we should note. I don't know. I just feel like she had so much promise when she was young and then so much went so wrong that it just seems like it could have been curbed. It reminds me a little bit of psychopathy really within someone because I end up studying psychopathy quite a lot with the people who I deal with in my books and in the podcast, season one of Edward Ruloff. She had a lot of the hallmarks that I I study, this glib personality, inability to be close with someone. She's targeting victims like Elizabeth, her would-be sister. But then it sounds like there's also a lot of crime of opportunity where she's just sort of there and she's has the tools and she takes advantage of it. But there's a lot of, this is what I want, get out of my way. And then the sexual gratification, it, it is interesting. Female killers who work on their own, I don't hear about the gratification thing. Usually that comes when they're working with another man, Fred and Rosemary West, or you yeah. know, any of these other cases. So she really is an outlier in that way. Yeah, I don't know. She just checks off so many boxes that it's hard to trace that one progression. What is the major theme here when somebody says, Mary Kay, what's your first book? Tell me about it. It's very much a class issue, too. It's definitely an issue of her being a woman, of her being working class, and of her being in a position. I mean, the one reason why it's so disturbing, her job was to take care of people. That's what she was supposed to do. And she did the exact opposite and got away with it for a long time. And that's really disturbing. It's scary. And then I think also one reason she got away with it for so long is that no one wanted to point a finger. It was stigmatized to be a victim of something like that, too. So I don't know that there is just one takeaway She's an unlikely killer. She's a woman and a nurse and educated and would seem to be an unlikely suspect. You said that she, I don't know if a cop asked her or or a newspaper writer asked her, would she have continued killing had she not been caught? Can you tell me just a little bit about that sort of conversation and what she said? Oh, she said, you know, I'm glad you arrested me when you did. Otherwise, I probably would have killed the people who I was staying with, too. Isn't that horrifying to think that they had come that close to dying? Right. They were sitting on the front porch with her when the detectives came and arrested her. I think that the idea that early intervention for either someone who has gone down a bad path because of their environment or because of something that's ingrained in their brain, if we're talking about psychopathy, all of that benefits from early intervention. I think that's what we've learned. Despite everything that she's done, why is it important to learn, I think specifically about women and female killers, which I have an interest in? I do too. I I think that most of the time the women know their victims. They're mad about something that happened and not just wanting to exercise power. And I don't think that that's the case here. She was all over the board. She didn't have just one MO. She didn't have just one victim profile. And I think that it's just an important thing to pay attention to because who's to say that like that's not more common than we think. On the next episode of Wicked Words. 
had he not been caught when he was, he would still be on this spree, which was so unusual in that it was not limited to one geographic area. I mean, he was killing all over the United States of America. He had no victim profile. He was terrifying. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.